Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful, exciting, very exciting to be here with you this morning. And thank you, Peter, for the introduction. I know that you don't know me very well, so I thought I'd just tell you one thing about me that you don't know. So this one thing is I like to collect selfies. I'm really a dork, a big dork. I like to collect selfies with influential Christian thought leaders. And um, so I'm, I'm, I have a growing collection, Nancy Beach, Gordon MacDonald, um, Scott McKnight. And my latest is my most special because this um, influential Christian thought leader has been very significant personally in my life. So I met him uh, a couple of weeks ago. So let's have that one. There you go. That's really big, isn't it? Um, so this man is John Dixon, and I met him uh, last week, and I'm telling you this because um, there's this great film out at the moment called For the Love of God, and it was excellent. Ollie's were there. You loved it, yeah? Oh, good. I'm glad you did too. Um, and it gives an excellent history of Christianity, and, and it shows us the good, and it shows us the bad. And, and if you have the chance to see it, I thoroughly recommend that you get out there. You can take that down now. Thank you for that. So one thing that came from that documentary that really struck me, I went home and I started reading about it because I found it such an interesting story. And it's a story that came from Hawaii. So let me tell you a little bit about what I learned. And it doesn't ruin the documentary because it's just a small part of it. So this is how this Hawaiian story goes. The US state of Hawaii was discovered by British explorers in 1778. At the time, the Hawaiian Islands were inhabited by around 300,000 native indigenous people. Within five years, European settlers had established sugarcane plantations on the islands and they brought workers to come work the uh, plantations. But with the immigrations came diseases like smallpox, cholera, whooping cough and leprosy. And those diseases spread rapidly among the native people who had no real natural immunity. And with 100 years, the native population was in danger of being completely wiped out. Leprosy became a terrible problem. And in the 19th century, it was considered highly contagious and totally incurable. By 1866, the sugar planters were worried about the effect of leprosy on their labour force, their immigrated workforce. And so they put pressure on the government to do something about the leprosy problem. Their solution was that they decided to quarantine 500 Indigenous people to a small section of one of the Hawaiian islands. And this was an island called Molokai. The reason that they chose this particular island was there is a part of the island, the peninsula, which was, um, it, it was separated on three sides by very turbulent ocean and then on one side by a 200, um, sorry, what was it, a 2,000 foot high wall. So a very steep wall. So once the people were in there, um, the only way you could get out was up this wall and the path was zigzaggy and it was slippery. And if you were very healthy, you could climb out, you could climb up that. Um, but if you weren't, a person with leprosy, they had no way of getting out. So the leprosy colony on Molokai was a natural prison from which there was no escape. That's terrible, isn't it? And the people who were sent there, 
Upon sending them, they were considered legally dead. And let me just to drive it home how bad this was, give you a description of the colony in those early days. The 500 lepers in the colony were in very bad condition. Many were in the final stages of leprosy, their hands, feet and faces horribly maimed. The festering sores and lumps caused by the disease emitted an unbearable stench. Every day someone died from the disease. The body of the unfortunate victim was wrapped in the equally foul blankets on which the person had been laying. The wrapped body was hung from a pole and carried away by a few chosen lepers who had sufficient strength. Often it happened that the dead were not buried deeply enough and at night wild pigs would dig open the graves and eat the rotting flesh. Even the graves that were not ripped open spread a suffocating odour. Catholic missionaries in Hawaii decided that something must be done about the conditions on the island. The people on the island were in the grip of homelessness, sorry, hopelessness. They fermented their own alcohol and they were nearly always drunk. They'd given themselves over to all kinds of depraved behaviour and their children and their women were horrifically abused. The missionaries felt they had to do something to save the souls of these people. So the Catholic Church in Hawaii came up with a plan. They decided on a five-week rotation in which they would send a missionary out, a Catholic uh, priest out, to spend a week um, and they would go on this rotation where they'd take it in turns a week each. The first priest to go was a man named Father Damien. Father Damien was sent with the strictest instructions, do not touch the people. Don't touch them at all and don't let them touch you. Do not, under any circumstance, eat with them. But within a week of arriving in the colony, Father Damien knew that he had to stay. He said, I would like to sacrifice myself for the poor lepers. The harvest is ripe here. He saw the plight of the people on the island and decided that he couldn't leave them. He refused to follow the careful rotation plan that they'd agreed to. Don't bother to send anyone else. I will stay, he said. He'd made up his mind. What do you think about Father Damien's decision? Maybe a little bit unwise? And history records that there are those that thought he was rather foolish and that it was reckless of him to stay on the island permanently. When I was a teenager, my dad uh, suggested to my older sister and I, there were four girls, four of us, that we find a church. Um, He said, you find one and I'll take you. And he knew, he believed that going to church was important and it would be good for us. I think maybe also raising his four daughters on his own, he probably thought he could get a bit of help. So we... um, We picked a church based solely on the fact that they had a surfing ministry and that they'd take us to the beach on the weekend. But within that community, we found love and friendship and support, and it was a good choice. My dad had his own quiet faith, and growing up, he didn't really offer me much by the way of religious instruction. But as a teenager, there's one thing that I remember him saying to me pretty regularly, Yvette, Be a Christian, love Jesus, but don't take it too far. 
basically be a Christian, but don't be too radical about it. Don't be impractical about it. Don't be like those people who say, I'm going to give my life to follow Jesus. Be a Christian, but don't take it too far. Now, I did understand what he was saying. He wanted me to make a good life. He wanted me to make good life choices. He wanted me to find a secure job and to save money. He wanted me to invest well and work hard for the future. He didn't want his daughters to be the type of people who would say, oh, God will provide, and then do nothing to work for their own provision. He wanted security for us. He wanted us to grow up with homes and health insurance and have children and put them in good schools and do sensible things with our money. Now, in addition to that, my dad used to always tell me I could be anything that I wanted to be. He really spoke very positive words over me and um, of, of all of the four of us. And he would tell us, you can do anything. In fact, he had this saying, um, it's hard to soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by turkeys. <laughs> and we, we would always be the eagles in his mind. Um, There's these amazing people who can do anything. So I'm very thankful to my dad for that. But you know what? It always came with the just be sensible. You know, just be sensible. And I think that's a fairly common attitude about life and especially about religious faith. Don't be too extreme with the way you live out your faith. Keep it sensible and responsible. Love God, but remember, God loves those who help themselves. Have you heard that? So what do we think about people like Father Damien? Too much, maybe too radical or irresponsible even perhaps? Today we're going to have a look at an example of someone who some thought was irresponsible. Too much, taking it too far. But before we do that, let's pray. Dear Lord, as we read your word and we ponder on it, may you move in our hearts for us to have the kind of response that you would love us to have. I pray that you'll help me to be faithful this morning. I pray that by your spirit you lead me as I share with these people this morning. Amen. So there is a story in the Gospel of Mark about a woman whose love for Jesus caused her to have a radical response. The story is set sometime within the six days before Jesus is crucified. And it's, you know, it's just prior to his arrest. So we're going to read from Mark 14. And we're reading right now from verse 1 and 2. Let me read that to you. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. It's approaching the time of the Passover and we're just days out from the crucifixion. All four Gospels tell us that Jesus was coming and going between Jerusalem and Bethany at the time. And Bethany is about three kilometres away. And, um, and that was all through the, lead, the week in the lead up to his death. Mark recalls that two days before the Passover, the chief priests were plotting to kill Jesus. The city would have been extremely busy with people coming from the surrounding neighbourhoods. And they were in Jerusalem for the festival activities um, full, like full busy kinds of days. Maybe think of it like Carousel Shopping Centre three days before Christmas. Busy last-minute preparations, a heightened sense of expectation, uh, maybe some stress about in-laws that are staying over for the Passover. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law are plotting to kill Jesus, but not during the day. If they go for him during the day, the people are, with the people around, there'll be a riot. It wouldn't look good for them. They need to arrest Jesus when it's quiet. We know what Jerusalem looks like, right? It's a walled city. We learned that in Nehemiah and Ezra. And it has narrow gates. So I think we can imagine that they're, they're taking part in the festival activities during the day and then they're going out back to their homes in the evening. And they're all, they're all kind of streaming through those gates in the evening. So it'd be pretty easy for Jesus to slip out through those gates with the crowd and for the, um, for the people who are searching for him not to be able to find him. So they want to arrest him, but they can't find him. But we know where he is. He's out in Bethany. Verse 3 tells us, While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So he's in the home of Simon the leper, or Simon, a man who formerly had leprosy. And I have an artist's impression of the meal. It's, the picture's a little bit busy for my liking, but, and there's a dog there. Um, but you'll see, uh, what I wanted you to see um, is they're sitting at a table, and often um, at this time tables were three-sided, so servers could come into the middle. And you, you kind of leaned into the table, perhaps on cushions, maybe on your side, propped up, um, so your feet were facing back and your, um, your heads were, were into the table. So you see there how he's... He's um, facing in, the artist has got him facing him with his legs out. I thought that was just a helpful image. So he's reclining at the table, Jesus is reclining at the table when a woman comes in and begins to do a rather strange and intimate thing, anointing him with a bottle of perfume. Now, I like perfume. Who else likes perfume? Come on. Yeah? But it's, it's really expensive and it's kind of one of those things I can't justify buying myself. It falls into that category of I just can't do it. So I, I asked for it for my birthday and my mother-in-law usually buys it for me, which is cool. And, and then I'm uh, very careful with it. So I'll, I won't wear it on days when I'm just around the house wearing my truckies. And I won't wear it. I won't let the kids play with it. You know, I just save it for special because perfume's expensive. So how expensive is perfume? I did a little bit of a Google search. It says the perfume that the woman had was very expensive. So here's a bottle of Chanel perfume, Chanel number no. 5. This is a particularly good one. I'm not really sure what makes one perfume better than another, but apparently this is a good one. You can buy this one in Australia for about uh, $4,000. Um, and that perfume... Imagine this is our alabaster jar of perfume. That perfume isn't as expensive as this perfume. This is very expensive perfume. All right, in my Google search, I found a more expensive perfume than that. So let's have the next one. So this one's called Clive Christian. And a 30 ml bottle you can get in Australia for $13,000. Don't think my mother-in-law will be getting me that one for my birthday. But our bottle here is more expensive than that one. Our bottle here, it tells us in the text, is worth about a year's wage. So it's, it's kind of hard to translate, you know, first century economy into Australian context now. 
But I imagine, I think we can think of it like this. Um, the minimum wage in Australia might be around 40000 I found it hard to find out, but let's say it's around 40000 because I think a $40,000 jar of perfume is extremely expensive. What do you think? Yeah, so she's dumping $40,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. Do you think that's taking things a bit too far? Are we shocked by her actions? Has she done a logical, practical, sensible thing? What would my dad have said? It's good to be a Christian. Love Jesus. Don't you think that's taking it a bit too far? Someone, some at the table, they thought so. It says they're indignant. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, they said. And they rebuked her harshly. They tore strips off her. Let's face it, the woman's actions were pretty radical. In first century times, it wasn't uncommon for people to have their wealth in commodities such as this, as well as in coins and things. And I think that she's poured out her life savings. And it's possible even that she's poured out her dowry that saved up for her marriage, dumped it all over Jesus. And she's done a really wasteful thing in the eyes of some of the people sitting at that table. Clearly she loves Jesus. But in their eyes, she's just taken things too far. In 2010, my elder sister Kath said to me, Yvette, we've decided to move to Mozambique. And I was shocked. They started applying to become missionaries with Global Interaction. That's our Baptist arm of missions. And they began the long process of training and qualification for the mission field. My sister Kath was a physio and an extremely gifted person. So gifted in leadership, very gifted in administration. Um, She was gifted in writing and counselling. She served very generously in her church. She worked in a hospital and she raised her three children. We've got a picture of my sister there. There she is. And then there's my, her husband, my brother-in-law, Cam. So Cam worked uh, as an ag scientist. He had a doctorate in agriculture uh, from UWA. And he worked at UWA um, breeding canola, finding ways to make canola more durable. And he would travel around the world helping people to do that. Very, very smart guy. And on top of that, he was an incredible worship leader. It was always a pleasure to lead worship with him, a very gifted musician and singer. So in short, two ridiculously talented and qualified people capable of leading at a high level. And I watched them sell all their possessions, their clothes, their furniture, their kitchenware, their artworks, their bikes, their tools. They didn't need any of it anymore. They took their kids out of school and they moved to a very remote village in Africa. Not to be physios or ag scientists, but to sit around with people, to attend funerals and to learn language and to share the love of Jesus. Love Jesus, Dad had said, just don't take it too far. And I have to admit, I sometimes struggled. I sometimes thought it was a waste of talent to send Kath and Cam to Africa. Couldn't we have found less qualified people? You know, the church in Perth needed them. And then it happened again. 
In 2015, my sister Liz said, Yvette, we've decided to move to Thailand. Her husband, Glenn, was an engineer with a promising career at BP. He reduced his hours so that he could study and they prepared for, for to be missionaries. They moved out of their lovely home, which was across the road from a very good public school, and they moved into his sister's home. They had another baby, and things were tight, but they studied and prepared for missions. And then came the time where they sold everything they owned. Clothes, furniture, kitchenware, artworks, bikes, tools. They took their kids out of school, and they moved to Thailand. Liz, do we have a picture of her? Yep, there we go. She's a registered nurse and she's one of the most compassionate, creative, caring people I know. And she's a gifted evangelist. She's also very beautiful, isn't she? She looks just like me. (laughs) And now she's in the early days of missionary life, learning language and homeschooling her kids. Again, she didn't really follow dad's instructions, did she? Moving your kids, uh, your whole family to a foreign country. Homeschooling the kids in a place with all these snakes and wild dogs where no one else speaks English. Love Jesus, Liz, but don't take it too far. So if we go back to the story of the woman and the perfume, we can see that there are two very different responses to what she's done. First, we have the reaction of the people at the table who scoffed, who got angry even. They thought her actions were wasteful. They wanted to take the perfume off her hands so that they could sell it and do something more practical with the money. But then there was Jesus' reaction. Leave her alone, it says in verse 6. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus defends the woman. She's done a beautiful thing, he says. And then in verse 7, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here Jesus reminds them of something that he's been saying quite a bit for quite a while now. A terrible, tragic thing is about to happen. Terrible and tragic for them in their eyes at least right now. He's going to the cross and it's just days away. And right now the woman is responding in a most appropriate way. Through chapter 8, 9 and 10 of Mark's Gospel... Jesus has been telling his disciples this. He tells them he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And Mark 8.32 says that he spoke to them plainly about it. He told them in plain language. So they should have known that it was coming. And I think that Jesus is saying this woman knew that it was coming and that she had to break into that moment and do what she could because Jesus was in his last days. So what makes me think that? So not only her actions and what Jesus says about her here, but this story is also told in the book of John. And in John, um, he identifies the woman as Mary, who is uh, the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus and Martha. 
So what then do we know about this woman? Because what do we know about Mary? We know that Mary is a good friend of Jesus and she's a devoted follower. We know that she sat at his feet and she learned from him and that was rare because she was a woman. But Jesus didn't treat women the way other people did. He elevated their status in that society. He allowed her to sit at his feet and learn as the men were learning. He treated her with dignity and worth. He was her friend. We also know that he brought her brother back from the dead. So this is Mary, the same woman who ran out to meet Jesus on the road and said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And not only did she do that, but they wept together. And then she saw him raise her brother from the dead. So I think this is a woman who knows exactly who Jesus is. She knows that he is the son of God. She's seen the evidence with her own eyes. And I think that unlike the 12 disciples, she's picked up on what he's saying when he kept referring to his death. After all, she is a woman. Now, they were in difficult and heavy days. Mary did what she could. She took her perfume. It represented her wealth and possibly even her hope. Remember that it was probably her dowry. And she gave it all to Jesus. She did a beautiful thing. And like Jesus prophesied, we're still talking about it today. It was a radical thing to do. But let's put it in context. I'm about to die. There wasn't a lot Mary could do about the coming suffering. But she did what she could. You know, the world is full of suffering There are so many things that go on that feel like they're so out of our control. But like Jesus tells Mary, even the small acts done with love and a pure heart, they're not wasted and they're not wasteful. She did what she could. She anointed Jesus' body before his burial. And it was significant because I think it was the only proper anointing his body was going to get. You know, in the rush of the the days to come and of taking his body down in that rush. Very significant in the end. In this passage, we're presented with two options. Two alternative ways of responding to people's expression of love for Jesus. We can be like the disciples and the others at the table who rebuked Mary for what she did. They thought she was wasteful. They scoffed at her giving We could secretly think that those missionaries who go off to Africa or Thailand are a little cray-cray. I was chatting as we were preparing for these messages, I was chatting with Dave, Dave Kilpatrick, and he reminded me of flag wavers. You know, the people who express their, their love and their joy in church by waving big flags. And he said sometimes people laugh at those people and I thought, oh, that's me. And I felt really convicted Because that's their extravagant, beautiful expression of worship. And I thought, I've mocked those people. And you know what? It wasn't just when I was an immature kid. Ha, mum, look at those flag waves. I saw some last year and I laughed at them. You know, I I felt like, as we talked about it, quite deeply convicted of that. Remember Father Damien, the missionary who was supposed to spend a week on the island of Molokai. He ended up staying for 11 years. I think we have a few pictures of him. 
He understood from his first day on Molokai that it would be impossible not to touch the lepers. He wrote in letters home that their wounds and mutilations repulsed him and that the stench of the people was unbearable, but he felt called to bless them. He blessed the dying. He embraced the sick. He ate with them from the same pot and he even shared his pipe with them. Loving them meant that he couldn't keep a distance. He wrote home, they are repulsive to look at, but they have a soul redeemed at the, pri- at the precious blood of our divine saviour. He resolved to treat them as Jesus would. Father Damien served on the island for 11 years. He built a hospital and a chapel and homes for the people. He established order on the colony and although he wasn't loved by everyone, many people came to faith in Christ through him. He was a tireless worker, full of enthusiasm and zeal, and he loved his work and he loved the people. One day, Father Damien spilled um, a pot of boiling water and it, and it hit him in, on the foot, and, then he re- and he realised that he felt no pain. He'd contracted leprosy. He continued to work despite his worsening health. He wrote home saying, "'Still I am happy and content.'" And though seriously ill, I desire nothing else than the fulfilment of the holy will of the good God. When he finally passed away, he was covered in festering sores and the leprosy had gone down into his lungs. He died in his bed on the island of Molokai and was buried with his people. Now, Father Damien was canonised in 2009, so that means he became saint But why so long after he lived? Because people didn't always understand his sacrifice. After after his death, he was accused of misconduct and later he was cleared. It seemed that some couldn't understand the man, um, you know, and, and why he did what he did. And they couldn't understand that he was just a man who looked at a terrible, tragic situation and did what he could. Now, I'm not saying that we're all called to give our lives like Father Damien. And we're not all called to serve on the mission field like Kath and Liz. But we are all called to do what we can. And we may think the world around us seems too broken or too far in the depth of tragedy for our small efforts to make a difference. But Jesus thinks differently. Do what you can, he tells us through his story. Even if it's small or it seems silly to others. Bring what you have, do what you can do. You know, earlier we spoke to Ian and Andy about their ministry at Bankshire Park, and I think they've seen a need, and with their team, they're going in and they're meeting that need. And Jesus doesn't scoff at that effort. He sees our hearts, he sees their hearts. What motivated Mary to pour out her most precious possession all over Jesus? What motivated Father Damien to move in with the lepers of Molokai, knowing full well he'd die on that island? What motivates Kath and Liz to sell everything they own and move overseas to the remote parts of the world? And what motivates Ian and Andy and Watto and... Jules, I'm learning names, 
to go into Bankshire Park. It's knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for them. It's knowing and experiencing his love. And I think that knowing leads to a response where they say, what can I do for you, Lord? It pushes them out. Do we know the richness of all the ways Jesus has loved and blessed us? Does it compel us to respond with radical generosity and kindness? You know what I'll be telling my kids? Love Jesus and do what you can to love others. God will provide for the needs of those who run after him with all their hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the radical generosity that you have shown us in sending your son to die for us. Oh, what reckless love you poured out on us. God, help us to be more like Mary and less like those who rebuked her. Help us to see you for who you really are, to love you like she did, to bring what we have and do what we can as we be your hands and feet in this world. Amen.